This series, if, if you're new and just kind of joining us, then you, haven't, you have 18 weeks to catch up on. But, but the, uh, the basics of the series, the idea is that we are all building a life. We're all building a life. And all the different areas, whether that's marriage or family or our work or our relationship with God or our time and how we use it or our purpose in life and the works that we're engaged in, all, all the different aspects of our life, we are building. Each of us are building a life. And all of the little things that we do contributes to the life that we are building. Every day at a time, every month at a time, every year at a time, we are building a life. The little that you do today, the little that you do this week, leads to the life that you have five years from now and ten years from now and at the end of your life. In some ways, it's like bricks. That's why I've got these props here. In some ways, it's like bricks. That all the different areas of our life, we are laying down a brick. This is my marriage. This is my family. This is my work. And we lay down these bricks. Day by day, week by week, we lay down the bricks of our life. And, and at the end, we've, we've got something. And it can be done thoughtlessly. We can just kind of lay down a brick here and lay down a brick here. And we, it can be done thoughtlessly. It can be done lazily. It can be done with the wrong vision. We can start building something and go, oh, I forgot that part. That happens every time I build something from Ikea or wherever. Then I'm like, dang it, we've got to redo the whole thing, basically. You can build it with the wrong vision. You can build it thoughtlessly. Or we can build what God's vision is for our life. We can build what God's vision is and what God has designed. God is the ultimate designer. God is perfectly loving and perfectly wise. And the vision that he has for your marriage and for your family and for your work and for your time and for your joy and for your emotions and for your relationship with him is perfect and good. God has a vision that he wants to build your life into. He wants the bricks that we lay to build into what he has designed for us. And that's what we've really been looking at in the book of Ephesians, God's vision. God wants more for you. And God wants to build into your life what he has designed. He has good for you in mind, and he has more for you than you can build by yourself. But there's kind of two ways to think about when I say that God has more for you or that God wants to build your life into something or that God has a vision for you. There's kind of two different ways that you can think about that. You can think about that like uh, Christianity or what God has for you in the sense of God has it and he just kind of serves it to you on a platter. That God has all of this good in mind for you and here you go. That's one way to think about God has more for you. He's got good in mind and God just kind of serves it to you. Another way to think of it is more like what is given after a battle. Freedom from a, a liberated country. Maybe World War II you think of. That there is good in mind for certain countries, but it's not served on a platter. It comes through a war. It comes, it's, it's the joy and the beauty and the vision that comes only after the difficulty. And really, that's kind of two different ways that we can think about Christianity. You can think about Christianity like a playground where it's just fun and everything is good and God just says, here you go, and all the stuff is just, it's just miraculous and, and totally enjoyable and there's no problems. And sometimes we think that's what we're signing up for. 
Maybe even if you're investigating faith and like, man, my life is too hard. I want Christianity. You think about it like a playground. But another way to think about life and Christianity is more like a battleground. And those are very different things. To say that God has more for you, to say that God has a vision for you, it's very different to think about which of these are we talking about. Does it come on a playground? God just kind of serves it up to you on a platter. Or does it come in a battleground that it's a fight? And how you will think about your faith and how you'll think about all the different areas, how you'll think about marriage and how you'll think about parenting and your job and how you think about your use of time and your emotional health and your relationship with God, it will be very different depending on which of these that you expect Christianity to be. What is it supposed to be? What is it supposed to feel like? And the Bible says that it's a war. The Bible says that God has a beautiful vision in mind for you. That God has great things that he wants to do in your life and build your life into, but he doesn't serve it to us on a platter. It is a war. It is a battle. It is a fight. So God has a vision, but it doesn't come easy. It's a war. And yet, in that war, God helps us. He doesn't just say, this is a war. Hopefully, you'll be able to figure it out. He helps us. He's with us. He equips us. And today, in this final section, Paul's been laying out this vision that God has for our life and everything that he wants to give to us. But he ends with saying, this doesn't come easy. It's a war. That's why he ends that way. He says, all of this beauty that God has, but you don't just get it on a playground. Get it on a battleground. It's a war. And so today, as we close, this really is a fitting conclusion to everything we've looked at. How do we fight to experience all that God has done for us? How do we fight to receive the vision that God has for our life? How do we fight to have all the bricks of our life be built the way that God designed them to be? How do we fight for that? So let's read the whole passage, and then we'll look at what this fight looks like. Here's what he says. Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. Finally, Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having prepared everything to take your stand, stand, therefore, with truth, like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Tychius, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you 
who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's explore this fight together, starting with who do we fight? In order to experience the vision that God has for our life, we need to understand it's not a playground, it's a battleground. But who do we fight? Who do we fight? And when we think about an enemy, when we think about the fact that there might be an enemy that is out there, what we do is protect ourselves. We do that in simple ways, just with locks on a door. If, if we believe or expect that there might be an enemy, we have locks on the door. We have police. We have alarms on our cars or security cameras. We have all sorts of things because we believe there might be some kind of enemy. There might be a burglar. There might be a murderer. There might be all sorts of things. And so we have various devices to protect from those things. We have the little things on clothes in the store. That way, if you try to rip it off, ink goes everywhere. You've got TSA that makes you take your shoes off and all the, make sure that your lotion isn't this big or whatever. All these different things because we think there might be an enemy. Think about even the billions, I don't know, maybe trillions of dollars that's spent on defense budgets militarily. We have a lot of protections and guards and measures to make us safe when we believe there might be an enemy. But what Paul tells us is that it's actually worse than that. He says we don't just have a physical enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We have a spiritual enemy. That's more powerful. A physical enemy, a lock might work. An alarm might work. A firearm might work. But we, he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Something more powerful. Satan, demons. Now, I don't know everybody's faith in this room, and if you're exploring Christianity, this kind of idea might be really weird to you, and more people in our country believe in God than believe in Satan, so sometimes it's an easier idea to swallow, to say, yeah, I think there's a good God, but not necessarily evil demons and a Satan and a devil. Isn't that just kind of cartoonish? Isn't it something maybe even religion just made up to scare people into doing things? All those kinds of things, we can maybe come to a text like this and go, I don't know about that. I'm kind of unsure about that. And yet, just follow along today and see if maybe this doesn't speak to you. If maybe you don't hear the ring of truth and go, that actually is a lot of what my experience has been. I don't know if you ever saw the movie. I think it's The Usual Suspects. It's kind of an older movie now, Edward Norton. But he says in there that the greatest trick the devil ever played was to get people to believe he didn't exist. And I think there's truth in that from the great philosopher Edward Norton. <laughs> and uh, C.S. Lewis said that there's kind of two dangers when it comes to Satan and demons and those things. He said that we can either be too interested in them and think too much of their power and be kind of too scared or too enamored with them, or we think very little of them. And we just think, ah, I'm not even paying attention at all to it. And we don't want to fall into either of those ditches. We don't want to think, okay, everything is Satan. That oh, something, you know, you're, you have a flat tire. Satan, I knew it, you know. I don't, you've heard that expression maybe of not today, Satan, that kind of like meme that goes around and people saying like, whatever it is, you're late 10 minutes for work. I'm sorry, it was Satan again, you know, and just eh, maybe, and maybe it not. 
We don't want to kind of just attribute everything to Satan, and we also don't want to be blind. That's what Paul is wanting to help us see. He says there's a real enemy. When we think about an enemy, we seek to protect ourselves. When we think that there is an enemy out there, physically speaking, we, we do a lot to be aware of that. And Paul says you've got not just a physical enemy. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood. And if that's true, if it's not just that we have a physical enemy, but we have a spiritual enemy, we would do well to pay attention to what that means. And even just in this beginning of who our enemy is, look at these words that he uses to say rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces. All of that is to say it's a powerful enemy. Those are all powerful words. He's not, hey, you have an enemy, but don't worry. You know, you can just kind of squish him. It's not like that big of it. He's saying, no, these are spiritual forces, cosmic powers, rulers, authorities. It's, there is a powerful enemy that is against you. There is a powerful enemy that is against us, against our church, against the vision that God has building your life into. And it's not only powerful, but he also uses this word. He talks about the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil means there's an intentionality, a planning, a wisdom. Sometimes if you think about uh, Satan or demons, or that you, our mind probably often goes to horror movies and that kind of thing. And usually in a horror movie or something like that, there's not a lot of planning. You don't see like all the ghosts huddled up and they're like making a plan. They just, bah, they just attack, right? But he's saying, no, that's not really what it's like. It's a powerful enemy that is very strategic, that he is making plans. He's making schemes. He is intentional. And listen, you, you get better at things the more you do them, right? I hope. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. That's what we were told, right? You get better at things the more you do them. Well, Satan's been doing this for a long time. He has studied humans for a long time. He studied you for a long time. He studied churches and faith and Christianity for a long time. He knows what he's doing. He's powerful. And he's got schemes, plans, intentionality. Now, there's at least three main schemes that the Bible gives to us that Satan has. They're not directly in this text, but because Paul says the schemes of the devil, I want to walk you through three of the main schemes that the Bible gives to us of how Satan works. Paul says to be aware of the schemes of the devil. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against these powerful things. It's against Satan. It's against the devil. He says this, but he doesn't spell out what all those schemes are. But the Bible does talk a lot about Satan and demons and, and how his schemes often work. And there's three main schemes that he uses that you can see throughout the Bible. And I want to give them to you. And you can see if you haven't experienced this. Because oftentimes... If we're expecting the exorcist, then we think, oh, yeah, he's not really doing anything. So here's the three schemes. The first is temptation. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, when we first see Satan show up, he comes to Adam and Eve and says, look at this fruit. It's good. It's tasty. There's nothing wrong with it. He doesn't come spewing venom he doesn't come scary to hurt. He comes attractive. He comes offering something. 
He comes saying, isn't this good? Don't you want this? Look how awesome this would be. Temptation. That might be the main way that we think about Satan's work. But oftentimes it's very ordinary. Is there anything wrong with fruit? No. Oftentimes that's the way Satan works. He offers you something desirable. He offers you something even good. He gives you the bait or shows you the bait, but not the hook. That's how Satan often works. We went fishing yesterday, my son and I. Didn't catch anything. But what you want to do is show the fish the nice juicy worm. You don't just throw a hook in. Be like, come on, fish. No stupid fish is just going to be like, ooh, that looks tasty. You want to present something good to them and hide, hide the hook. That's how Satan works. All the way back in the Garden of Eden. And, and if you know the story of Jesus, when he begins his ministry, he is in the wilderness and is tempted by Satan for 40 days. And that's the same thing that Satan does with Jesus. He is tempting him, even with good things. Don't you want power? Don't you want people to, don't you want people to worship you? Don't you want bread? Don't you want food? It's good things that Satan often uses to tempt us. And that is what Satan will say to you. Satan will say to you, this is good. There's no harm in this. Satan will say to you, it's just a little bit of fill in the blank. You need this to be happy. Satan will give you nice dreams and visions of a preferred life of what could be yours. Don't you want this? Don't you want your life to be like this? Wouldn't this be better? Don't you want happiness? That is Satan's strategy since the beginning, is to present all of the good of something and to tempt us to be like God. That's what Satan said back in the garden. Eat this fruit. You can be like God. Now, obviously, there's an aspect of being like God that we should want to imitate God in his character, but to be like God in the way that Satan tempts us with is really a self-focus. You can have power. You can have greater wisdom. Think about yourself. You deserve this. Think about you. All the self-words that we often use, a focus on us, oftentimes are Satan's voice. Where do you feel Satan's temptation? Where do you feel the voice that says, isn't this good? It's just a little bit. There's nothing wrong with this. Where do you feel Satan's temptation towards being like God and you being in a position of satisfaction and authority and wisdom and people looking at you and honoring you? And where do you feel that? Temptation is really the first scheme that is presented throughout the Bible. The second one is deception. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And again, when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, the things that Satan said to him were all backed up by Scripture. Satan used the Bible when he was tempting Jesus because it's true-ish. The way that Satan speaks to us is often deception, meaning it's got truth, but it's not applied right. Or it's got truth, but it's not all of the truth. This is often how Satan speaks to us. He speaks in deception. Things like this. God will forgive you. I've talked to many people 
who commit to a path of sin because they say, I know God will forgive me. That's deception. God will forgive you. Or it might be something like this. You are considering sin or so, and, and Satan reminds you, well, look, this person sins. Nobody's perfect. Or things like, God doesn't care about a TV show. God doesn't care about $10. God doesn't care about 10 minutes doing fill in the blank. God doesn't care about some, some truth mixed with lie. Sometimes he will say to you things like, hey, you can handle this. A situation that maybe is a tempting situation for you, but he tells you, you can handle this. You, you, look, you're strong enough to do this. You can handle it. You can resist. He will say things like, this is too hard for you or too much for you. Things that maybe God is calling you into and he will tell you, this is too hard. This is too much. This is going to take this much time. This is going to take this much energy. This is going to take this much money. This is going to take a lot from you. And this is too much for you right now. There's some truth in that. The things that God calls us to are often difficult. He will tell you things like, God will take care of it. Sometimes when I hear Christians say things that are kind of true, but not true, I hear the voice of Satan in those things. Things like, all we can do now is pray. Maybe. Maybe sometimes that's true, but God calls us to do a lot besides pray. Satan might say things to you like, look, if God wants to save that person, he'll save them. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to worry about teaching your kids this. God will teach them what he wants to teach them. In God's time, God will do this. Things that are kind of true. That's what Satan said to Jesus. Throw yourself off of this building. Doesn't the Bible say that God will protect you? Well, that's kind of true. But Jesus responds saying, don't test the Lord your God. So Satan often presents things that are true-ish, that have the color of truth. But it's not what is needed for that situation. And it is a deception to use truth to help us walk away from what God actually has for us. Things like, you don't need this to be a good person. You don't need this to be a good Christian. Where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible say you need to do that? God's not in a rush. You can just wait. Sometimes it's magnifying one issue at the expense of other issues. Sometimes it's magnifying one aspect of what the Bible says, like, isn't God love? But that then trumps everything else that the Bible says about his justice and, his, and our need to repent. Doesn't God want you happy? Well, yes, but that doesn't trump all the other things that God calls us to. He will focus in on one issue at the expense of others. Where have you had thoughts like this? And think about where does it lead you? Temptation, deception, and then often accusation. Satan's name, the name devil, means one way you can translate that is slanderer. One of the main ways that Satan works is as an accuser. That's what the Bible says also, that he is the accuser of the brethren. He's the accuser. He brings accusations and slander against people against God, against you. 
that he accuses and slanders and says things to condemn. That's part of how he works. One of the ways that it talks about Satan's work in Corinthians is that he seeks to blind us to who God is, the glory of Jesus. He seeks to blind us. And part of how he does that is through accusing who God is or who we are. Just think about some of these if you've heard any of these kinds of things. And I say heard because often, again, Satan doesn't show up like in the cartoons as a little demon on your shoulder. He doesn't show up as a, as a face coming out of a mirror. He doesn't show up as some spooky thing levitating off the ground. He shows up in his voice in our mind that we think maybe is just our voice. And yet if it's the voice of temptation and the voice of deception and the voice of accusation, that is how he works. Those are his schemes. So think about if you've heard any of these things, accusations against God. He's not good. He's holding out on you. God loves them, but not you. God's too, God's too busy. He doesn't, he doesn't really have time for that prayer. You're not really suffering that much. God, wait till you're suffering more. Then God will talk to you. Doubts that we often have. Did God really say? You can't trust him. If you trust him, if you follow him, it won't go well. He wants to hurt you. Life with him is too hard. There was an atheist billboard an atheist organization had paid for. This was several years ago, but it said, there's no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. As if, if you believe in God, there won't be joy in your life. That is often what he says to us. He doesn't want joy for you. Life with him is too difficult. He may accuse not God, but he may accuse others to you. That person's weird. You don't want to be friends with them. I remember reading uh, Screwtape Letters, which is a book by C.S. Lewis. It's a great book. And there was one line in it that just had really stood out to me when I read it. I think I read it uh, when I graduated high school. And there was so much in there that I feel like, man, this is a lot of the things that I'm experiencing and that's in my mind that keeps me from church or being interested in Christian community. And he, he talked about that, okay, Screwtape Letters is this younger uh, demon that's trying to tempt this one person, and an older demon is writing him and kind of giving him advice. He's his demon coach. And he says, okay, your, your, uh, your subject is going to church. It's like, you made a big mistake. He shouldn't have ever been at church. But now that he's there, get him to focus on that lady's double chin. And I was like, man, I had been in situations like that where I was like, I just can't be, like I'm just distracted at church and just like I can't even listen because I'm just looking at the annoying thing in this person or the thing that bothers me about this person. That's so subtle. That doesn't, there's no horror movie about double chins, right? <laughs> and yet, that's the kind of way that Satan works is to accuse somebody. Now, I hope everyone's not self-conscious and like, uh... <laughs> But that's how Satan works, is often like that, to accuse another person and be like, they're stupid. They're, look at them. Look at their weakness. To accuse another person and say things like, you shouldn't trust them. They don't really like you. They don't really want to be friends with you. They're just being nice to you because they have to. 
or to say things like telling you what other people's motives are. Isn't it amazing how often we know what other people's motives are? Maybe that's just human nature, or maybe Satan is telling you, here's, what here's, why they, here's what their tone was. Here's why they sent that text. Here's why they didn't send that text. Here's what they think. Here's why they're doing this. Here's why they're not doing it. Here's why they showed up. Here's giving, feeding you motives. He's the accuser. He will often help break down the relationships that you have with people by accusing them and giving you nice lines, nice zingers to say to people so that his words can enter into your words. Have you ever felt that? You're in a conversation with someone and all of a sudden you get a great line and you use it and you see the destruction it does? I've done that in my marriage and hate it and go, dang it, where'd that line come from? It wasn't God's word. When you get those little things, you say it in an email, you say it on social media, you say it to a person, he's the accuser. He will give you visions of other people's lives so that you compare yourself to them and will accuse them even by the good in their life. Look at what they have. He will remind you of things that people have done, whether true or false. He will keep fresh. If you struggle to forgive, if you struggle with bitterness, remember earlier in Ephesians that Paul said, don't let anger, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That gives Satan a foothold in your life. It gives him room in your life. It gives him access to your life. That's because part of what Satan does is to tell you to, to cultivate that anger and that bitterness by reminding you, look what, look what she did. Look what he did. Look what he doesn't do. Look what she doesn't do. Look what they said and just keeps reminding you of another person's faults or perceived faults or failures or sin. The opposite of forgiveness. He keeps it fresh in your mind. He will accuse, and he will accuse you. He accuses God, he accuses other people, and he accuses you. He accuses you of your past. He reminds you of what you've done. He tells you, if anyone knew that you did this, he calls you a liar. He accuses your relationship with God. He tells you you don't belong because of what you've done in the past. He tells you you're dirty because of what has happened to you in the past. He accuses your future. You're never going to change. You're just always going to be like this. It's not even worth it. It's not going to work. He tells you about the bad that will come to you. So many people struggle with anxiety, and there can be a lot of reasons for that, but part of it is because we are constantly presented with a voice telling us, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Accusing your future. Telling you certain things aren't worth it. Nothing will come of it. Why even try? He accuses your present. 
telling you you're not really a Christian, telling you you're a failure, you're worthless, you're stupid, you're a hypocrite, telling you your motives are bad. You're only serving because of this. You're only giving because of this. You're only, in, you're only reaching out to that person because you want to look good. You're only, he can accuse you of your motives. Which then, what's the fruit of all those things? We don't do them. We, what's, what's the fruit of all the accusation of other people? It's division. What's the fruit of his accusation of God? It's mistrust. It's not obeying. It's, it's a lack of love and coldness. The fruit, you have to ask, what, where would this lead if I follow these thoughts? Where will it go? What will it create? He will tell you things like, this is why, this is why, accusing you, this is why nobody likes you. This is why God doesn't bless you. This is why you're still single. This is why. What's the fruit? You see, we have to say, who is it that we are fighting? Paul says, it's not flesh and blood. It's spiritual. And he's powerful and he is scheming. Those three things are the main schemes that the Bible presents to us of how Satan works. That there's a deception, there's an accusation, there's temptation. It's not, if you are expecting, okay, I guess if I see a monster pop out of the closet or something, then if that's what you expect, you'll never be aware of the way that the enemy is actually working in your life. We will think that it's just basic stuff. We'll think it's just our own voice. We will think that it's just the normal mundane things, but Satan is deadly. Satan is deadly. Jesus says of him that he is a murderer and has been a murderer from the beginning. Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. And you need to understand this. You are in a fight and there is an enemy. And if you feel any of those things, temptation, accusation, deception, it's not just your own head. You are in a fight. There's a real, listen to me, there is a real enemy that wants to hurt you, that wants to stop you, that wants to change you, that wants to influence you, that wants to take the bricks of your life and destroy them. There's a real enemy that wants to take your marriage and destroy it, that wants to take your faith and destroy it, that wants to take your joy, that wants to take your family, that wants to take your work and your time. He wants to take the bricks and destroy them. That's what he wants to do. There's a real enemy. Paul's saying, look, we, we can't be blind to that. You're not on a playground. You are on a battleground. He's working. So how do we fight? If I just left you there, you might leave here going, well, crap. <laughs> that's, that's the application of the sermon. Everyone be scared, you know. How do we fight? Paul presents to us, this is a powerful, scheming, non-physical, but spiritual enemy, but then he helps us to see, you can't just live in fear. You can't run because you couldn't run even if you wanted to. You can't just ignore and just say, okay, maybe I am hearing some of these things. Maybe some of this is active, but I'm just going to kind of ignore it and press on. That, that's not the way to deal with it either. And oftentimes that's probably our inclination is if you hear temptation, deception, accusation, just kind of shake it off and 
press on. But that's not what Paul says either. That's a way to lose the fight. If you're in a fight and somebody is shooting bullets at you, you can't just go, I'll just ignore it and hope it goes well. No, that's not what Paul says. Think about if right now you got an alert. You know, sometimes you get those alerts on your phone, like an amber alert. If you got an alert and it says, attention, we have confirmed evidence from the FBI that there is an assassin that's going to kill you. He, he is a paid assassin by the KGB and based on your online activity or something, he thinks you're a threat and he's going to kill you. If you knew right now in Arvada there was an assassin that was, going, that was coming after you, you got a news alert, you wouldn't ignore that. You would say, I need to figure some things out, <laughs> right? Maybe do a few push-ups, maybe try to like, I don't know. You would be like, I need to get ready for this. Watch a couple, I don't know, Bruce Lee videos or something. You would try to get ready. And Paul says, we need to get ready. There is an enemy. He is powerful. He is planning. And so we need to get ready. He says, be strengthened by the Lord, by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God. Take up the full armor of God. Being prepared in everything. Sometimes in movies, there's a scene. Sometimes it's a sports movie. Sometimes it's a military movie, a superhero. There's kind of like the suit-up scene. In boxing, and they're getting the gloves on. and they're, There's kind of the suit-up scene. In superhero movies, they're getting the armor on or whatever they're doing. They're, Captain America's grabbing his shield. and There's kind of the suit-up scene, ready for battle. And that's what Paul is saying. saying there is an enemy. And you need to put on the full armor of God. Take up the full armor of God. There is this action that he's giving to us. Don't just ignore it. Don't just run. Don't just be scared. Put on the armor of God. Take up the armor of God. You, you cannot just know that the armor of God or the resources of God exist. You can't just know, oh, that exists. You have to put it on. Take it on. Be prepared to engage. Jesus is the king that has defeated Satan. But in another sense, it's kind of like when the Nazis were defeated in some decisive battles in Normandy and things around that. But there were still skirmishes that took place. Jesus has defeated Satan decisively, and yet there are still his forces operating. But because Jesus has defeated him and because Jesus is more powerful than him, when we take up God's armor, we are able to engage in battle. How do we fight? He then gives us several things. That This is a classic passage that you have maybe heard before. Maybe even when you were a kid, if you grew up in the church, you've heard about the armor of God and kind of all the different pieces. And I was tempted to like buy a night suit on Amazon. I was like, I really want to preach in a night suit. And, but I was like, that's ah, going to be too expensive. <clears throat> so next time, if there's a generous donor that wants to pay for a night suit, I will preach in a night suit. <clears throat> Instead, I was like, well, I'm doing some prop. I grabbed some bricks from my garden. So not quite as like, ooh, wow, a night suit. But he goes through the multiple things. He says, here's how you fight. You take on God's armor because God is more powerful. You take on God's armor because you're not alone and God is with you. You take on God's armor because 
God is way more powerful than the spiritual forces that are against you. He's wiser than the schemes of Satan. So you take on God's armor. And then he lists out all these different pieces of the armor that are probably similar in mind. He would be thinking that, that his original listeners would be thinking of kind of the Roman armor that they had. And he starts with the belt of truth. And a lot of these have an overlap to them. But he says that we take on the belt of truth. Truth to know all that God is and all that he's done and all that he says. If you want to be able to fight against the accusations and the deceptions and the temptations, you have to know what is true. You have to be able to say, no, I know you are telling me that God doesn't love me or God doesn't care for me or life with God is going to be too hard, but I know truth. I know who God is. I know what he said. I know what he's promised. I know that he's faithful. And the belt of truth allows you to stand when there are lies and when there are accusations. You're able to stand with the belt of truth, knowing what God says and fighting lies with truth, fighting accusations with truth, fighting doubts with trust. You are able to rest in truth. The Bible talks about God's word as true. Jesus says that he himself is truth. So some of what truth means is just coming to Jesus as a person. We know that because God's word is true, part of what this means is you have to know what the Bible says. If you are to have the belt of truth on, it means you have to know what is true compared to all the other things. There's a lot of lies, and if you're not sure what you believe, or you just kind of buy into, well, my friend said this, or the culture says this, or this blog says this, you're losing truth, which means you begin to lose the fight. You have to know who God is and what he says and accept what he says as true and have his truth getting into you. You know what the Bible also says is that the church is the pillar of and the buttress or the promoter of truth. And so part of how you are able to rest in truth is through God's church also. And without truth, without the belt of truth, if the, the more that your convictions are weak or wobbly or your convictions aren't rooted in God's truth, you, without truth, your pants fall down, often Literally. The more your convictions are not there. Truth is part of how we fight. And then righteousness. And this can mean two different things. Righteousness in the Bible has kind of two different ways that it's often talked about. One is the righteousness that is given to us by Jesus, that you as a Christian have Jesus' record of righteousness. That's called gift righteousness or passive righteousness or imputed righteousness, that when God looks at you because of the work that Jesus did, all of Jesus' righteousness is attributed to you. That's one way. The other way that the Bible talks about righteousness is our lived-out righteousness, our continual growth and sanctification and godliness, seeking to live rightly in the way that God has ordered life. This can mean both things. To be armed with righteousness on our chest, one connotation of that is to say, is there habitual sin in your life? 
If there is, you are weak. If you are living in unrighteousness, you are not protected. That's, again, similar to the verse in Ephesians that talks about not letting the sun go down in your anger. That principle is saying when you are committing to sin, you are opening the door to saying, come on in, Satan. I want to walk the path that you walk. If you are committed to a path of sin, if you are walking in habitual sin, it's not just that you are doing bad things. It's that you are unprotected. The core of you is unprotected. Your heart is unprotected. The vital organs are unprotected. The other connotation of righteousness is that when you are accused and when you are attacked and when you are told that you are worthless or have no value or that you're too bad for God to love you or any of those kinds of things, you are protected with the righteousness of Christ. That you can say, I'm loved because of him, what he did. God cares for me because of what Jesus has done for me. That my value and my standing with God isn't based on my performance, but based on what Jesus did for me. And so it's his righteousness that protects me from even the accusations and even things that might have a hint of truth in them. Then he says to have the, our feet sandaled. I don't know if it's flip-flops or if it's what kind of you know, sandals they are, but your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. This is about us bringing the peace of God to others. To think about this as armor is to say that we engage in spiritual battle. We're, we're not just passive, we're not just protecting ourselves, but we actually are ready to bring the gospel to others. We're ready to bring the gospel to others. We're able to actually engage in battle because other people around us are struggling with accusation and temptation and deception. And we are ready with the gospel of peace to remind people of who God is, to remind what Jesus has done, to remind the reconciling peace that he gives through Jesus. And we're ready to bring that to people in our lives. We're ready when other people are struggling in our church and in our marriage and in our family to say, you need the gospel and I'm ready to bring it. And part of what this does is actually protect us also because we are seeing ourselves as engaged in a fight, in a battle, on a mission, which keeps us from a lot of the apathy and lethargy and boredom that oftentimes we can fall into. So to be readied with the gospel of peace, to have shoes of the gospel of peace is to say, I'm engaging in battle. I'm looking at where people need the gospel and I'm ready to bring it to them. And then he talks about the shield of faith. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. The flaming arrows of the evil one. Here's what this means. You're going to get shot. You're going to get shot. There's flaming arrows that are coming at you by Satan. You're going to get shot. That, that's, that's true. You don't escape this. Flaming arrows, and that's like, what does that mean? It's obviously metaphor. It doesn't mean a real flaming arrow is coming at you. But it's often those thoughts that I'm talking about that come out of nowhere. Like, where did that come from? That sticks in you. That begins to spread like a fire that gets into your heart, that begins to burn, 
that lodges. Sometimes we even use that language, like a thought lodged in my mind. I don't even know where it came from. I couldn't get it out. Like a flaming arrow. And he says, faith is the shield. Faith is, I trust in who God is. I trust in what God has done. I trust in what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Faith is taking the truth of who God is and what he says and what he's done and using that to combat the flaming arrows that come at you. To remember, I know God is good. I know God is gracious to me. I know that God is all powerful. I know God is all wise. I know that God loves me. I know that God is for me. I know, and you use those truths, that's faith, against the darts that come at you. And if you don't do that, then the arrow remains in there. Fire spreading. Do you fight the darts with faith? Or do you just try to shake them off and ignore them? And then he talks about the helmet of salvation. Again, so much of this has overlap, righteousness and faith and salvation and truth, but the helmet of salvation is we are reminding ourselves as there's accusation, as there's temptation, as there's deception, we remind ourselves of the salvation that we have in God, which helps us to know, I know that God is for me. If he would save me in his son, Jesus, Romans 8 talks about, how much more is he not for me in everything else? That when we worry about our future, we know I've been saved. I know I have a, the hope of salvation. The Bible often uses that language. I know what my future holds. I know a resurrection body awaits me. I know that all of the sorrows and the pain and the grief that I experience here isn't the end. I, I am saved. I know that when I'm condemned and told that God couldn't ever forgive me, I know I'm saved by what Jesus has done for me. When I doubt or am unsure if God will be good to me, if I can trust him, if I can obey him in this thing, I remember he saved me. If he saved me, then he's for me. And if he's for me, I can trust him and obey him and follow him knowing he only has good in mind for me. The helmet of salvation. And then he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Which means we, again, fight against the various things with God's word. Not just self-talk. Not just, you got this. You're fine. You're not that bad. You go, girl. Or whatever. It's not just self-talk. We use God's word. Self-talk is a, a flimsy plastic you know, dollar store sword that might kind of work and then it's broken. God talk is the sword of the spirit that is able to fight against the spiritual forces of darkness. And we use his word but like most weapons, it takes a skill in learning how to use it. If you ever used a weapon, first time you used a gun, probably felt very uncomfortable. You watched a lot of movies and you thought, oh, I got this. When you're like, oh, I don't. Like To actually learn how to use a weapon of any kind, whether it's nunchucks or a gun or whatever you've learned to use, it takes practice and that grows in comfortability. The same is true with God's word. That 
if you're not regularly using God's word, if you're not regularly receiving God's word, you're going to be very unskilled in handling it as a weapon. But we need it as a weapon. And what is a weapon for? What is a sword for? Part of how we probably think about this is we are being attacked and we fight. That's true. But if you think about a soldier presented here, which you would have had a better picture in your mind if I was wearing a night suit, just saying. But if you, if you think about a sword, it's also to go into battle for the sake of others. Which means this. Our unfamiliarity or our non-use of God's word isn't just not protecting ourselves. It also means that other people are hurting because we're not engaging in battle for them. See, we need to learn to use God's word. We need to learn to wield the sword of the spirit for us, but also for the sake of others. Other people need God's word coming through your mouth in their life. Your marriage, your kids, your community group, your church needs you to fight with the sword of God's word to help them. And then, some people maybe would disconnect this. I don't think it is, but he then moves straight from that into prayer. And because prayer doesn't correspond exactly with you know, a belt or a breastplate or any of those things, but he's still clearly in the context of talking about this battle. To pray at all times, every prayer request, stay alert, perseverance, intercession. I think about prayer as calling in air support. The other things are on the ground and the things you're doing, and then... Prayer is you need the, the napalm. You need the bombs to drop. We often tend to managing things in our life or we pray when there's some kind of big thing. I often, and maybe I've asked you this, but people share their problems or their issues or their sins or their sufferings. And Okay, tell me, are you praying about that? Or what's your prayer? Eh, kind of, not really, a little bit. Paul says, we need, if we want to engage in a fight, we have to be, he spends a lot of time, all this section, talking about prayer. Don't pray just for some situations, pray at all times. Don't just say, I tried that or I prayed once. Pray with perseverance. Don't just kind of pray, well, yeah, I was kind of doing it on the drive or kind of distractedly, but pray alert. There's a focus, there's a perseverance, there's a continuance, there's an ongoing aspect where we say, I can't do this by myself. I need to pray. Look around your life. What you're struggling with, what other people are struggling with, are you praying like this? Paul says, and listen, anytime I've taught on prayer, I say this. We cannot expect, and this is one of the lies that Satan will tell you back with the deception. We cannot expect that God will work in our life if we're not asking him to. He might, but you can't expect, we have no right to just expect that time will heal things or it'll just work itself out or when God wants to do something, he'll change it. Or we, God says, pray, talk to me all the time. Pray for other people. That's what intercession is. We, we can't just, just hope that things change in someone's life. Can't just be annoyed or frustrated. Pray. All to, Paul, Paul says, look, it really matters. 
Paul says, pray that the message is given to me, that I may be bold, that I would make it clear. Paul says, pray for me. This is Paul. He's one of the best Bible writers there is. He's got great reviews on Yelp, great letters. He's started a bunch of churches. He's done miracles. And Paul's like, I need you to pray for me. I won't even be able to speak how I should speak. I won't even, I'll be a coward without, I need you to pray for me. He's saying, we have to pray if we're going to engage in battle. Not just once, all the time. Not just distractedly, but alert. Not just for yourself, but for others. And then even when he closes, I think a part of this is, it's not just that we pray for people, but when people pray for us, I think part of kind of closing the loop on all of this, because a battle involves not just you, but multiple people and a community, is that when people have prayed for us, when people have fought for us, we actually tell them the result of that. I think that's why he leads into this, saying, Tychius is going to tell you the news about me so you may be informed. He'll let you know how we're doing to encourage your hearts. Because part of how you keep going in a battle is when you see that there's progress being made. And so he's saying, pray for me, pray for other people. And then he says, I'm going to send Tychius to you. And he's going to let you know about the answers to your prayers so that your hearts are encouraged. Why? So that you keep fighting and keep praying. That's what keeps the battle going. That's true in normal battles. They, that's why they have walkie-talkies. So they can say, yep, we've got, we won, celebrate, and things like that. <laughs> I've not been in the military, but I've seen a lot of movies. That's what Paul says. So how do we fight? Paul says, this is how. We fight putting on God's armor, being prepared. God is strong. We access his strength against the enemy. For every temptation, for every accusation, for every deception, he is stronger. You are not alone. It is scary to think about an enemy that's against you and wants to destroy your life and all that God wants to build your life into, that there's someone that wants to knock that down. That is scary to think about. But he says, you have God's armor. Take it on. Put it on. Be strengthened by him. And then the final thing is why do we fight? A battle is always for something, right? It's not just for fun. When you're a kid, maybe you have a fight just for fun. But a battle is always for something. It's for liberated Europe. It's for defeating an enemy that's harming people and now there can be peace and now there can be freedom and now there can be joy and now they can live happily ever after. It's, a battle is always for something. Why do we fight? Well, Paul used this language of standing so that you can stand, so you may be able to resist, take your stand, stand. And then even this, the undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ, all of this is getting at everything we've been talking about in this series. That the reason that we fight is because he wants, God wants us to be able to stand, to be able to live in his vision. He doesn't just present us a vision and say, here it is on a platter. He wants us to be able to stand, to know what our vision is, for our house to stand, for our life to stand, to be able to live in the undying love that we have for Christ, to be able to live in that. That's what he wants for us. To be able to, that's why it comes, by the way, as finally, 
That was the opening of this chapter or this section. Finally, it's not new content that he's necessarily introducing to us. He's saying, you know, everything I've already talked to you about, marriage, parenting, and work, and time, and joy, and all that God's done for you in salvation, all of that, that's why he ends with finally, because he's saying, God has done all this for you. This is what God's vision is for you. He wants you to be able to stand in it. He wants you to be able to receive it. But in order to do that, you have to fight. That's why we fight, is to be able to receive all that God has done for us and stand in it, live in it. We're going to take communion. Every week we take communion as Christians. Communion is a time where we remember Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. If you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, you can grab one of those in the back. And here's what we remember when we take communion. We're remembering that Jesus died to save us. And salvation means a point in time. But salvation also means what did he save us for? What did he save us to? He freed us on the cross so that we can enjoy all the vision that he has for us. Everything that he wants to build your life into, that he wants to build your marriage into and your family into and your time and emotions. God died to rescue you, to save you, so that you could experience all he has for you. So we've been in this series for 19 weeks. God's presented through Paul his vision for us as a church and for you. Don't you want that? Don't you want what he died to give us? I do. And it's worth a fight. And so as you take communion, I want to encourage you to, to pray, to confess to God where maybe you've just kind of been self-sufficient and tried to handle the fight on your own. Or maybe you need to confess where you've just expected things to be easy. Or where you've bought into the deceptions and the temptations and the accusations. Maybe you need to just confess. And then put on the armor of God. Meaning pray and remind yourself of truth and salvation and righteousness and all the different things. And ask God if there's thoughts that are pervasive and ask him to remove that. And I'd love to pray for you too. I'll be in the back, pray for you. Nothing's too weird to pray for, by the way. What I mean by that is if you say like, man, I, you said that a lot of this stuff is just kind of thoughts, but I'm seeing some stuff too. I've got some, I feel like I've actually seen some demons. I feel like I've, Nothing's too weird to pray for. God is strong enough to give you the life that he died to give you. He wants it for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book that we could explore over these few months. And I thank you for your vision for our church and for our lives that you want to build us into, that you want us to experience. Thank you. And God, I do pray against Satan and his works and his servants and the powers and the authorities and the rulers and all the different ways that he seeks to tempt and draw us away from you and accuse us and deceive us. And God, I pray that you would silence his voice and destroy his work in the lives of our church and the lives of these people. God, take it away and help us to put on your armor that we may fight in the battle and experience the vision of of life that you have for us. You are the victorious king. Let that truth sink into our hearts even as we 
pray and sing these songs. In your name, Jesus. Amen.